Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today we are bringing you the final episode in this year's series of DEI Summits. This one is focused on the MENA community, which is Middle Eastern, North Africa. And this is, again, another important conversation. And we have some incredible guests who join to share, honestly, how they've been feeling, how they have been coping and leading, and how others can take action for change. What's really interesting about this particular community, and I have to give so much credit to Carla and Tara Hassan for helping us to come up with the right title for the summit, which was the unaccounted, is that according to the U.S. Census, there is no box that they can check other than white. And yet none of them are white. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things in this summit, and you're going to hear from them directly about the challenges, the racism, the hate, the anger that has all been faced towards them from so much misperception of their fellow Americans. I hope you do take the time to really tune in and listen, and thank you for all your support this year. We have one more episode of CMO Moves coming up. It'll be the 150th episode, and that is airing live next week on December 9th. And there we'll have eight incredible guests join us. I hope you can join us as well. It's called The Business of Marketing. But until then, I do hope you enjoy this very important discussion. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Unaccounted MENA Summit. My name is Mehmet Orhun Zengenler. I am the Senior Vice President of Sales and Operations here at Adweek. First, on behalf of our entire team, thank you for joining us today. We hope you and your families are doing well and staying healthy. Today is one of the several conversations we have had and will continue to have to spotlight different communities, bringing forth the biggest challenges, opportunities, and ways to drive meaningful change. However, I firmly believe today's conversation will be different. 
Maybe I feel that way because it's so close to my heart, but I believe today's conversation will make you feel uncomfortable. It might even make you upset, angry, or inspire you to spring to action to make a change. But more importantly, I am confident it will challenge you to be a better friend, colleague, and a person. I would like to tell you about how it all started for me. Like millions of courageous immigrants who left their homes to find an opportunity to succeed, my father brought me to the States in 2001 and gave me an opportunity to be the best that I could be. At the time, I was 14 years old. I did not speak a word of English, and unfortunately, I landed in the States a month before 9-11 attacks. When school started, like many freshmen in high school, I was harassed, bullied. But after 9-11, things took a turn for the worse. The finger pointing, shouting things like go back home. Some of the kids even started calling me a terrorist. Because of their lack of education, they were associating my background and religion with Al-Qaeda. What's even worse is that none of the teachers would protect me from this. It was pure ignorance and incompetence. I felt very lonely. I was hopeless. After feeling the biting sense of dread, aggression, and discomfort, I thought about switching schools or going back to Turkey several times. But with my dad's love and support, I decided to stay and learn from this experience. So in the end, like many things, I learned to live with it, and I still continue to fight the good fight from time to time. I accepted early on that people will always be suspicious of me because they will assume that my background and religious views encourages violence more than other faiths due to long-lasting long implications and the legacy of the 9-11 attacks. It is so ingrained in me by now that up until 10 minutes before this event, I contemplated of shaving my beard so that I would appear more white. And this stems from the fact that Middle Eastern and North African Americans are instructed to select white on US census forms and many other forms, although we are culturally perceived as not being white. It's years of being unaccounted and unrecognized. In just a couple of minutes, nine incredible leaders will join us to share their personal experiences, how they dealt with ignorance, personal boundaries, and discrimination, how they broke glass ceilings, how they personally and professionally navigate in today's environment, and lastly, discuss where we still have obstacles. Just by being here today with an open mind and an open heart, our hope is that we can all take away some new perspective and actionable solutions to help us more move forward as individuals and collectively as an industry. Without a further ado, I would love to introduce an inc incredible leader and my new friend and our moderator for today, Fahad Kawaja, founder and chief marketing officer of HIU. Welcome, Fahad. Thanks, Mehmet, uh, and I appreciate the kind introduction. Hi everyone, I'm Fahad Gwaja. I'm the founder of Hue, which is a social impact platform dedicated to the advancement of people of color who work across our industry. And we serve as a platform for companies to find the best talent. I'm a big believer in the power of purpose, the importance of community and the need to have equity across all of our communities to help our health and wealth. 
And I'm really excited to be here with this really amazing group. And I want to take a moment to thank Adweek, Nadine Dietz, and the whole team for continuing to have the tough conversations and bring forward the perspectives that maybe you wouldn't typically hear so that more and more people can get their voices heard. As brand leaders, as marketers, we have a responsibility to make sure that we recognize the importance of identity because identity matters. All that most of us want is to feel like we matter, that our voices are being heard and that our voices carry weight. Today's conversation is going to be with an incredibly diverse group of leaders. And it's really going to be focused on a community and a group that covers multiple continents, spans more than 20 countries, yet continues to suffer from a sort of invisibility. And when they do get visibility, it's often the wrong kind of visibility that's grounded in tropes and stereotypes, the types of stereotypes that lead to some of the things that you just heard Mehmet mention, the types of stereotypes that lead to folks asking me if I've ever owned a camel, the types of stereotypes that lead to fears and issues where, for example, every time I've walked into an airport over the last several years, I've been quote unquote, randomly checked consistently for more than 20 years. That shouldn't have to happen. So without further ado, I wanna go ahead and actually invite the panelists onto the stage. We've got a fantastic group and I'm gonna ask if everyone could actually uh, just start out by sharing a little bit about who you are, your role, and just tell us a bit about your story. And then once you're done, pass it on to one of our other panelists and go from there. Uh, so without further ado, I'm gonna kick it off to Carla Hassan to start us off. Hi everybody, thank you so much Fahad and thank you Nadine and the Adweek team for, uh, for this wonderful opportunity. My name is Carla Hassan. I am the Chief Marketing Officer for City. Uh, I am a proud Lebanese. I grew up in the Middle East. I was born in Lebanon, raised in uh, the United Arab Emirates back when Dubai was a place people said, what state is that in? Uh, and I find myself here in New York City, uh, married with a wonderful 13-year-old daughter named Noor. Very nice to be here. Oh, I'm going to toss it off to my friend, Mariam. Thank you, Carla. Um, it's nice to be with everyone. I'm Mariam Banakaram, and I'm the head of marketing for Nextdoor. I um, moved to the United States in 1980 after the Iranian Revolution of 1979 by way of Paris, and I landed in um, the lily white suburb of Lafayette, California, um, where I'm pretty sure I was one of the very few Iranians. But um, you know, I think one of the things I've learned in life is that I'm usually the other in the room, and um, you know, it was one of the things I remarked when I went to Univision, because I always joke all good Iranians should work in Spanish language media. Um, and one of the other advantages was that um, when I was at Hyatt as the global head of um, marketing there, I often could step in for um, a lot of the different um, DNI groups we had, because, you know, as the person who's the other, apparently you can just fit into any slot that works. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to being asked if I went to school in a camel or if I slept in a straw bed because it's just a conversation opener. 
Okay, so with that, I'm sending over to Stephanie. Thank you, Miriam. Um, thank you, everybody. It's so nice to be here. I'm Stephanie Natty Olson, the founder of We Are Rosie. Um, I am the daughter of a Palestinian Muslim refugee and a white American woman who actually met in a car accident here in Atlanta. Um, so I have this pretty unique background of diversity within my own, uh, my own home and my own upbringing and um, have always kind of struggled with like where I fit in on the spectrum, right? Like truly not even, not even feeling Arabic enough, um, certainly not feeling white enough, Muslim, Christian. So there's been a lot of dynamics at play in my own personal identity that have made me kind of just always accept that I'll never really belong. Um, but uh, fortunately for me, I'm white passing. I'm the only child of three children in my family that has an American name, um, primarily because my brother Omar and my sister Nejwa had a lot of challenges with their names before I was born. So I've carried my um, incredible privilege in being white passing, having an American name and my unique perspective on diversity into everything I do and how I show up in corporate, um, certainly. And it's really led me to create We Are Rosie, which is um, a community of people that have been um, overlooked and underestimated in the advertising industry that deserve access to wealth and opportunity. Thanks for having me. I will kick it over to Jasmine. Thanks, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. I'm Jasmine Atherton. I am the VP of Marketing at Etu Home, and I am an Iranian-American, much like Mariam. My parents came here directly from Iran uh, right after the revolution in uh, the 1970s. And much like Stephanie, I have also had this dynamic with my name. My, my name is actually Jasmine Jasmine. Uh, my middle name is Yasi, which is Farsi for Jasmine. My parents decided at the very last minute to change Yossi to my middle name so that I wouldn't quote unquote be bullied on the playground. So I've kind of struggled with that and the, the idea of identity as well throughout my life. Um, but I'm so excited to be here and to uh, be alongside these amazing people. Um, I will pass it now to Tariq who also I think has had a name dynamic throughout his life as well. Thanks, Jasmine. Um, I'm Tarek Hassan. I'm the uh, CMO of Petco. Uh, also proud Lebanese. Um, slightly different story from some of my, my partners here and that my family has been in either Canada or the U.S. since the really the late, 19, late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, but to Jasmine's point, my real family name is actually Asaf, uh, not Hassan, and it was changed by uh, immigration when my grandfather immigrated. So I think about them and I think about this amazing collective here today that makes me smile on the 100 year journey to, to this point. I think they'd be pretty happy to see this today. So thanks for having me. Oh, I'm gonna pass it on to Farhana. Thank you, Tarek. So my name is Farhana Saya. I am the child of hardworking immigrants of Yemeni descent um, by way of Indonesia. Um, my father was your stereotypical Yemeni um, who arrived to the United States and opened up a, uh, worked at first at a grocery store and eventually opened up his own grocery stores. Um, and that was my upbringing in Brooklyn, uh, my, my customer service upbringing. Um, I'm honored to be the mother of three amazing Arab American children. Um, and so excuse me if you hear one of them distance learning upstairs, I think it's her lunch break. Um, I'm also the proud wife of uh, the mayor of Patterson, New Jersey. Um, it's New Jersey's third largest city and one of the most diverse cities in the country. 
Um, it also includes one of the largest Middle Eastern populations in the country. And um, while I know the census is more of a sim symbolic in our chat, um, I was you know, honored to be able to put my marketing cap on these past few years um, during my personal time and helping get people counted. Um, so that's my personal side. And professionally, I am the marketing director at CQ Fluency. Um, we're a global supplier of translation services, but more importantly, a woman-owned and minority-owned company. Um, made a uh, I, I made a decision to um, go that route purposefully. Um, and also, Stephanie, just like you, uh, I have diversity right in my home. Um, I'm in an interfaith marriage, and um, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than that for, uh, for my children. And I'm gonna pass this on to Dahlia. Thank you. Hello everyone, happy Friday. Thank you for having me on this important platform. My name is Dahlia Tarabai. Uh, I work at Google leading a global team that enables the digital transformation journey of some of the largest consumer goods companies in the world. Um, I also co-founded the first Arab employee resource group at Google called the Allah app. Uh, I'm a Lebanese citizen. Uh, a green card holder, so an immigrant, very much a proud immigrant. Uh, I've been back and forth between MENA and the U.S. my whole life. I come from a very humble rural town in the mountains of Lebanon, born to a Druze Orthodox family. As a child, my father moved us from Lebanon to Kuwait to get us out of the civil war in Lebanon and then out of Kuwait to the U.S. when the Gulf War erupted. Uh, went to high school here in the U.S. and in the aftermath of September 11th, I got to see several banners on houses near our school and in our neighborhood saying Arabs go home. My brother, um, his name was Osama, came home telling us he was harassed by bullies, called a terrorist. Um, and I think the general rhetoric at the time contributed to some degree to my decision to go back home for undergrad, but and then worked across the Arabian Gulf in finance, brand management, and management consulting, and found my way back to the US with Google um, and for business school, and again at Google. Um, and I'm really, really excited to be here alongside some of those amazing leaders from MENA Descent. Um, I think we have a lot of uh, work to do and a lot of also uh, thought, great thoughts to share around how we can make the unaccounted accounted. Thank you all for having me. I'm going to turn it over to Heidi. I'm not sure if Heidi went already. Actually, Steffi, why don't you go? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Sepida Nasiri. Um, I am an Iranian, Iranian-American, uh, moved from Iran uh, when, at the age of four to Germany and lived there for a little while before moving to the US. Uh, my parents immigrated twice, starting their life at zero. Um, and I just can't imagine that with three kids. Um, and like many immigrants, when they immigrate, um, their focus was giving their children opportunities. And um, one fact for my father was education, but also uh, primarily for his 
firstborn and daughter was an important fact to make sure that she had opportunities wherever we went. So coming to the US, uh, he decided to bring us to Silicon Valley in Cupertino down the street from Apple and some Sun Microsystem. That's where I went my last two years of high school, uh, graduated and went uh, to college in Southern California, close to Tehran Angeles. Uh, and um, through my uh, life, I've always wanted to give back and uh, be able to uh, support our community. It was really important, uh, especially as an immigrant being um, away from family and being away from any type of um, familiarity for me it was so important to impact and, and create impact for our community. Um, that journey brought me after college um, to starting my first company. Um, I've always been an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, which I know most uh, Middle Eastern parents are horrified of. Um, they always want you to have a um, uh, solid career path. And that was certainly not mine. Um, started my first company with several people who were much wiser, much, um, much more experienced than I was. And it was actually focused on, um, as a media company, on elevating the profile of our community. And, and that uh, continuously has been the theme for my career path. I've worked for several different startups and um, tech companies throughout my career, always in the startup ecosystem. Last company I was involved with um, is called Women 2.0, which was focused on bringing more women into technology and seeing the impact it had uh, bringing resources to women and bringing more women into tech um, brought the journey to starting Women of Mena in technology because as we talk about women in tech, as we talk about diversity in tech, all women have to have a seat at the table and that includes men and women in tech as well. Um, I'm a firm believer that representation matters. Um, as we look at our generation and the next generation, um, looking at the media, looking at representation and executives, if you're not having our community represented and our voices heard, we won't know what the challenges are and we are not able to implement solutions. Thank you so much for having me. And I will pass it on. Heidi, did you want to go next? Uh, it's actually back to me, oh. Oh, um, but thank you for that introduction and thank you all for all the stories. There's so much color and richness in what I already heard. So I'm really looking forward to the rest of the conversation. Uh, and what I'll ask is, you know, I'll, I'll ask a question, um, I'll toss it out there, um, and it's really open to anyone who wants to add or build on the last thing you heard. We really want to keep it a fluid conversation. So, you know, without further ado, the first thing I'd love to just understand from folks is during these really challenging times that we're all very, very much in the midst of and aware of, how are you leading with, you know, your day-to-day -day life, with work? Just Tell us a little bit about how you're leading. And I'm gonna ask actually if Farhana, you could start us off. Yeah, I think what's really important with how we lead is that we have to listen. Um, and I think we have to take a step back and ask ourselves if we're truly listening. Um, it's just really important to make sure that sometimes it may be easy to, to say, hey, I, I don't agree with that idea. But before we even go there, um, we, we just, we have to be open. Um, and I just think of my own experiences, um, as a, uh, even as a marketer with ideas and, and, you know, especially younger in my career being dismissed and 
just sort of saying yes. So I think that's really the first step is, is listening and asking ourselves, are we truly listening? Yeah, I'll add on to that. I think there's a, a, a compassion component that comes from listening. I heard this phrase the other day called compassion fatigue um, in relation to everything that we're dealing with as a, a culture right now with coronavirus. And I was like, one, this feels uniquely American that we're like tired of having to care about, <laughs> about other people. Um, but as leaders where your job is to care about other people, um, it is, it is, this has been a tough stretch, you know, like there's no way around it and there's no blueprint. There's nothing that we can say like, oh, well, when this happened last time, this is how it went. And this is what was, um, consoling to people that are experiencing trauma every day. But I think kind of tapping into that center of compassion and understanding like the humanity of everybody that you have the privilege of leading right now um, is showing up every day and working under absolutely like incredible circumstances. And we have been for nearly a year um, is really centering, right? To allow you to really lead from that compassionate place. I'd love to build a little bit on that, Stephanie, because I think one of the things that um, in particular immigrants, but I also think just people of color in general or people who have a different culture in general bring to leadership is this notion of compassion and empathy. And so, you know, much like much like you as well, when you were talking about being white passing, I felt the same way for a very long time, right? I could be someone that, you know, is of Italian descent or whatever, but, you know, I, I definitely white pass and I, I probably use that to my advantage over the years. But interestingly enough, what I was always wishing inside was that somebody would actually know who I really was. Um, and it wasn't until I actually started talking about it till it became a lot more freeing. And I think I personally, at least I bring that to leadership, not just during this time of COVID, but just in general, this notion of empathy of like really understanding where other people come from so that you can help solve problems with them, their own personal problems, right, from a management's perspective, and even sort of broader business problems. And I think that's unique when you, you know, when you already are the other, as Mariam said, right, you, you have a, a certain sense of um, it's something different that just has you entering a room thinking with empathy and leading with empathy because you want to know, because you know how it feels when people don't know who you really are. Yeah, that's beautifully put, Carla. It, it is really, really beautifully put. Thank you, Carla, for that. I do think um, one quote which I heard from a dear mentor of mine is, we are all in the same storm, but in different boats. And that hit me um, in my approach also to leading my team and just my approach as a leader, as it's very important to create that psychological safety to allow people to be okay or not to be okay, to allow them to show how they are okay or not okay um, in their own way. And a lot of that is cultural as well. It's cultural, it's personal, there's also a professional element to it. Um, and I do think coming to Carla's point from that, through that immigrant route and from a diverse background enables me to do that with empathy and from the heart and the mind. If I can yeah. build on that as well, you know, I think normalizing who you are. And what I mean by that is acknowledging really who you are and your background and your culture and, and implementing that into your team. 
And that way, opening the door for others who are from different backgrounds to be comfortable to share as well. Um, that human connection is really important. What I've done in the past and I continue doing is talking about my background and who I am and uh, not just creating that image just that I'm a leader and I'm untouchable, um, but instead sharing stories or sharing my background and my culture, implementing my culture into the everyday. You know, if you are celebrating something, I want everyone to know that it is. I don't hide, for example, Persian New Year or, or anything else that I personally um, want to uh, celebrate or acknowledge. And this creates a safe space for everyone else within the team or within the company to come forward and recognize who they are. As individuals, uh, we always shy away to become authentic and uh, creating that safe space is going to change that. And I think too, given the time that we're in now, it's in order to, I've found to be able to do that is to really set time aside to connect with people so that you can have the opportunity to share stories and to connect on a more personal level in a way that if we were all in the office right now, it would happen naturally out at lunch or over coffee or whatever it may be. And I've found that carving out time specifically towards that has been really important um, and something that I, I try not to overlook in kind of the day to day. No, I'm just going to go back. One of the things you guys just said made me think about, I mean, I moved here when I was in junior high, right? Which was really a time where you wanted to be like everybody else. I kept saying to my parents, why can't you go to PTA meetings like other people? Um, I didn't understand sort of the differences. And it was funny when my, you know, friends would call to hear my grandmother and her accent. Like I didn't, I took it all in stride, right? That was sort of like just the way it was. Um, but really as, as, Im like, as immigrants came under pressure in like the last few years, I think there was this real sense for me of like wanting to stand up for my identity. It's not so much that I wasn't aware of the fact that I was Iranian or a woman or whatever, but all of a sudden I felt like I needed to wear my identity like um, boldly in order to um, make it okay for other people, right? For me, I'd sort of found my way through, but I think part of it was just um, acknowledging it so that other people could feel like it was okay to be who they were. And so um, I'd been so used to being a chameleon for Miriam to become Mary, to sort of fit in. Um, but I do think it really matters to sort of allow for people to be whoever they are, because you begin to recognize like what you sacrifice um, to sort of conform, right? Um, and I, I just don't think that that's really good for business. It's not really particularly good for your health or your family, or frankly, um, for anybody who's in the role of marketing, right? Like we actually have to allow for those differences. We recognize that that's what makes for better ideas and for better businesses. And, and like you just said, Jasmine, like I love the fact that I get to see like crazy things happening on Zoom at all times, you know, like somebody's husband walking by in workout gear or your dog or whatever, um, because people can't sort of package it the way they used to. I mean, I was never good at that anyway, as Carla or Tariq can attest to. I just let it all hang because like, you know, let's just show you how incredibly complicated it is. But now sort of people have no choice. And I think that's one of the gifts, if there is such a gift to 2020. <laughs> one thing, I'll, uh, you know, it's interesting hearing what Miriam's talking about, what Sefi was talking about. It's And part of the reason we pulled this group together in the first place is you're hearing about it requiring the courage of individuality to be able to do this. 
Whereas we have some real systemic issues that have to be addressed because the normalization isn't formalized systemically in our organizations. And so the whole notion of unaccounted was about the fact there is no box for us, right? The box by definition is that Caucasian box, which is no one's cultural experience and certainly not the exchange back to, to the experiences you're hearing us talk about. And so part of the other element of this, and Mary and I have talked about that, we're going to just be loud and proud about it because we, you know, we've gotten to a place where we're senior enough, old enough, and maybe a little bit dumb enough to kind of say the heck with it. I'm going to say what I, what I think, and, and we need to drive change here because we have an accountability to those that are behind us, um, and just like those who came before us. And, and I think, Tarek, that's, that's a perfect segue because you know, what, one of the things that we recognize is that communities with Middle Eastern backgrounds across the country feel marginalized, they feel unheard, they feel unseen, and there are real systemic structures that have led to that, right? For example, the census and others. So Tarek, maybe you could start us off, um, you know, tell us about your experience with that. Look, I think um, it's interesting. I think you're here, even though I, my experience and my family has been here, you know, in some form or another for over 100 years, the themes that you're going to hear people who've just immigrated in the last 25 or 30 years, we all hold very similar themes. And, and you know, the marginalization stories are the same stories. I, what I did actually was I had, I found myself needing to do a touchstone back to learn more about my, my truth. Stephanie and I talked, you know, you and I, we talk about Am I, you know, you're not white enough. You're not really Arab enough if you haven't really experienced it. So I, I spent time in the Middle East and, and as part of, and part of my career. So I've done two stints working in the region. I still don't speak very well. I speak fluent menu and, you know, how to, and, and direction. And that, that's about it. But culturally, that was important for me because it allowed me to establish what I wanted to represent in terms of how I exist as a leader here in, in the U.S. Um, the marginalization components, I think we face, you know, slightly different marginalizations. We, we talk about white passing, there are times when I would say it's white passing for the moment, right? It's white passing in front of your face, but it's not necessarily white passing when certain decisions are organizationally made or the, the statements that take place. Um, I think that we, we move between these spaces and I think you're hearing all of us talk about moments in our career where we maybe leaned into it to our benefit and now at a different place in our career where that marginalization is being reflected by the experiences we see in others and other cultures. And I think there's strength and there's clarity that's been found in that and how we've come together, um, not only as a community here, but other, other cultural communities as well as leaders to start to do that. Yeah, and I'll add, I mean, to go back to what Miriam was saying, this idea, you know, as the, the child of immigrants or grandchild of immigrants, there is kind of this culture of like conforming, right? It's like a safety mechanism. Um, you know, my dad came to the States in the 70s with a fourth grade education. Um, and had been working as a tailor since he was like 10 years old. And he arrives here, can't fit his name on the immigration forms, changes our family's last name, um, doesn't name me the name he wants to name me in an attempt to just help me conform. And, and it's, it's carried with me throughout my entire life. I mean, truly, if I'm being honest, like the only reason I took my husband's last name when we got married was because my middle name is Ramadan. So Stephanie Ramadan and Natty, which was my, my name for the first 30 years of my life was a non-conforming name and it created all sorts of uh, pain in the ass in my life. And um, I had the privilege of being able to change my name, but it, doesn't, it still doesn't feel like who I am. It's not who I am. It's literally just a mechanism to try to conform. Um, and, and what Miriam said resonated with me so much because 
being Palestinian um, is offensive to people, right? Like just our sheer existence is offensive. And there's a lot of con connotations about being a Palestinian. I was taught at a very young age to keep that to yourself, right? Like just try to conform. And so I don't know what it is with um, kind of everything, the convergence of all the cultural forces that we're experiencing right now. But the past two, three years have been the first time in my life that I've lived who I am out loud and that I've been really proud of my heritage and I've been able to champion it. And I hope that it opens other doors for other people and encourages them to do the same. My, my husband and I had a, a interesting, lively conversation on the heels of our prep call that we had a couple of days ago. He, we were talking about the census and how that's been a struggle for a lot of us. And he asked me, he was like, you're Iranian as a question. And I said, yes, of course. And he was like, but you're an American citizen. And I said, yes, of course. He was like, so would you say you're American? And I said, yes. So the, the simple answer of yes to both of those questions was this kind of, uh, it made him uncertain, it brought this like uncertainty in his head. He's like, well, how can you be both? And it's like, you can't, I am, I am both of those things. And I'm sure that if my husband who has married into an Iranian family struggles with that um, kind of idea, I can only imagine that it, it, it is um, something that a lot of people think of. Um, so an interesting kind of, um, point as well, building off of Stephanie. Yes, I'd love to. Sorry, Carl. Sorry, Carl. Go ahead, babe. No, I'd. Uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, now you do because <laughs> yeah, I just called her that because we're married. So. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would be very awkward, right about. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Moment on Zoom that happened. <laughs> oh my gosh! Love it. But actually, you might be going where, where I was going, but um, Yasi, you actually had me think about something, which is that um, our daughter, who is 13, and has the same experiences, Mariam, that you did now, however many years later, when it comes to, you know, her friends or school or like, oh, God, you have to be those parents. But it's interesting because we had a conversation the other day. I said, I must have said something to her that was in the realm of like, well, I don't care what your other friends' parents do. We are Lebanese and this is, you know, this is our rules or whatever. And she said, but okay, but we're Lebanese, but we're also American and we're in America. So, and you know, it was a tense conversation anyway. So I think she was kind of pushing there. But but the point is, even with her who she doesn't just have roots that are Lebanese like she she like loves that country she goes every single you know year she is truly truly Lebanese even she struggles a little bit because she's like well what 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 am I at 13 right am I Lebanese and do I have those norms in our house but then when I walk out the door I'm supposed to be American and not Lebanese. And so it's an interesting struggle even now for our 13 year old living in a, you know, in, in this household and going to a very progressive school, it's really still confusing. So it's um, your, the challenge that you're posing is, is not just a, an adult one, it's just one across even our society where even our kids are feeling that way. Yeah, I was actually gonna go to a, a slightly more um potentially controversial place and say, Jasmine, I think it's, it's a, a proof point in the failure of the American melting pot model. The notion that citizenship has now been lost with or, or misreconciled with cultural identity, the, the inability for the, uh, this country to reconcile with your identity of who you are from a cultural experience 
and the distance that's been created across generations of their own immigration experience has never been highlighted more than we saw during this last political year, uh, political mm -hmm. period. Um, and so if anything, I think for all of us, and you're hearing us all say, this is, this is what rose up uh, the need for the voice, as, as Miriam said, to come out even louder. Um, it's interesting. I grew up in Canada, born, you know, born in the Lebanese capital of Toledo, Ohio, but, <laughs> but, but born in, in uh, raised in Canada. And the, and the experience, um, while some of the themes held incredibly, incredibly different in terms of that, there isn't that same sort of conflict between citizenship and culture. There's certainly the tropes that come with culture, but the American experience is, is and I think it's what we see in, in, in you know, the Black Lives Matter experience is that inability to be able to own your cultural identity and have it flung upon you as a replacement of citizenship and nationalist pride uh, is toxic. And, and it's now taking place in, a, in, in, you know, for our kids in a way that's unexplainable. So, I mean, I'm going to say, you know, one of the things I was on a panel with a couple of other Iranian Americans, I like the hyphenated names we've now adopted. Um, and it was actually fascinating. One of the things we were talking about was how um, I'm fortunate to live in New York. And the reason I love living in New York is because it's the one place where I felt for the first time, even though I lived in Argentina, I lived in Paris, I lived in London, in Lafayette, California, where I really felt like I belonged. And I think because there is no one way to be in a city like New York, you can sort of bloom to become who you are. And for me, that's really the place that began to give me my identity. And so Tarek the, and Carla, the one thing I'll tell you is a, a mother of a, um, a college student, right? Natasha's 21. And I'm married to a good Jewish American boy from Cincinnati, right? So total melting pot or mosaic, however you want to call it. Um, my answer to you is that um, she went to Columbia and came home one day and said she was going to take Farsi. And I like almost fell out of my chair. I was like, my daughter is going to study Farsi at college. Like, and you know what that's a, an example of? It's an example of all of us being willing to speak up, right? That you know, when I said this to a friend of mine who's a psychologist, he was like, of course she wants to study Farsi. She wants to be closer to her mom. But part of it is like, you're showing the way and making that acceptable and okay. And like, I love it because, you know, sometimes I get to have a secret language with her. But the fact that that was something she wanted, whereas for me, it was all about conforming, right? She wears that as a badge of honor. And sometimes she sort of says, um, yeah, I'm, I'm part Iranian, part American, and that's actually a badge of pride, whereas it was for a long time something, and by the way, that's in this environment, Tariq, that you're describing, right? Um, and, and in New York, where, you know, you would think that would be an easy thing, but sometimes you still feel like you're an outsider. And I, I think that there's like um, challenges, but also hope, right? Because there are great role models. You can feel comfortable to be who you are, and you do get to um, pick where you live in this amazing country where you can actually find places that are more welcoming than other places. Mm -hmm. Come, all of you come to New York because we're alive and kicking, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to build up on what Mariam said, you know, having uh, been raised in different countries, so you kind of become whatever is your environment, yet my parents at home always pushed us with the culture and keeping that culture and speaking Farsi at home was really important. And um, moving out and, and going to college and then coming back, for me, it was really important to also uh, share that knowledge of my culture with anywhere I lived or wherever I was. And an example of that, which everyone always asked me, why are you doing this was, 
uh, teaming up at every city I lived in with the city. Uh, for example, in San Francisco, we have every year now Persian New Year at the San Francisco City Hall. And we've teamed up every year with, you know, uh, the mayor in order to make sure that they are involved so that we can share who we are as a community and being part of the community. And I think that's really important. If you are unseen, you will continue being unseen unless you bring awareness of your background, of your heritage and who you are as an individual. And for me, it's always been from a young age, an important part of my journey to elevate that. To, because people, as long as they don't know who you are or what your culture is, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's, you know, at work environment or companies. And that goes back to, you know, in tech, for example, where we say there aren't enough women in tech. Well, it gets further when you talk about cultural diversity as well and not recognizing those individuals who are doing incredible work and elevating their profiles so they're being seen, then the next generation can continue seeing what they can become and understanding the challenges that they are there and what solutions are out there. One of the reasons I started always making sure that we are change agents. So not just me, myself, but through the organization we created empowering others to do the same. And I think that's really important as individuals that when we see something that's missing to step up, it takes only one person to have a voice or build something and then bring in stakeholders that can support that as well as a journey. Yeah, I think that's like part of the responsibility of being a leader with any diverse background. I think about this idea of like um, not knowing or not understanding breeds fear but knowing breeds compassion, right? And so um, Arabs have not been, or people of Middle Eastern and North African descent have not been historically well represented anywhere um, in America. And so now that we have the platforms that we have, I certainly feel a sense of responsibility to kind of normalize um, my presence um, so that people can move from like fear-based, which is what, what we've all experienced our whole lives with name calling and, and discrimination and all of the awful things that, that come along with um, being other um, so that we can kind of shift that into a knowing that really creates space for empathy and compassion because so much of what we've experienced both in the workplace and in our personal lives um, being from a, a different background um, our culture or country is, is coming from a place of fear. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting as I think about something that Tarek was saying, right? The idea of the melting pot, right? Often when we hear the melting pot, I think growing up, a lot of us thought, oh, it's this great coming together of these different cultures, but what it's also doing is a bit of an erasure of identities, right? And so rather than focus on the melting pot, what if we actually looked at it in a different way where it was about rather than assimilation, is it acculturation? Is it acclimation? How do you actually think about that? Um, and actually, we have a question from uh, someone in the audience that I want to ask right now as well. Um, and I want to encourage more and more folks to ask questions. We're getting some great questions, so please keep them coming. This is great. Um, and you know, even in the way this is phrased, I think it's an important question. Juanita asks, as a minority, how do you avoid being silenced over time or being tuned out by leaders? if you're the only one in the room that maybe has your background or has awareness of being intentional towards diversity in general. Um, I'm gonna ask that question to Jasmine. So 
somehow I knew that was coming and I think I know Juanita. So hi, Juanita. Um, I think that there's a, um, on one end, a fear from being the colored person in the room about speaking up. And then there's, I would say there's also not a fear, but um, hesitation from like non-diverse um, uh, or like maybe an American or, or, or a white person to, to um, ask questions about your background or they're trying to be politically correct. So they're maybe just gonna be silent and not address something because they're worried they might offend you. And I think on both ends of that, like just being more open and, and willing to be wrong or willing to be corrected I think is a really important thing. Um, back to the example with my husband. I mean, sometimes he says like, okay, don't get mad. I just want to ask you about something silly. Like, why is it that when you guys celebrate new year, this, that, or the other, and he's, he's really, he's really truly asking and he might ask it in an offensive way, but he doesn't mean it. So I've found that over time, just being patient with, um, uh, being patient and being open can really lead to a better dialogue. Um, and that can happen in the office, in a meeting with people, or even in um, personal situations. Good question. If I may build on that, I think it's a great question. Um, I think the importance of allyship keeps coming to mind, especially as we look at the data of how to move the needle towards diversity and more inclusion. And organizing as a community or coming together as a community in different fields is becoming more and more important and data-backed. Um, it is crucial in the practice of emphasizing social justice, inclusion, um, to seek allies and to organize so that you stand up for the marginalized and to fear uh, to feel emboldened to speak up and to step away from that danger of being silenced over time. Um, and I think I look at the amazing people in this group and several, you know, examples come to mind. Um, and, and that's not just professionally, even personally. Like I, I remember when I first moved back to New York, Carla and Tarek invited me, you know, and the other um, and a few other people of Middle Eastern descent who had no families over for Thanksgiving. And we spoke about, you know, inclusion and in the community. And we talk about what we can do in our, you know, in our own organizations. And so it's a, this concept of allyship and the strength it gives us to not be silenced and to speak up collectively um, is something that comes to mind in response to this amazing question. You know, if I can just add to Dahlia, I think one of the things that was super interesting for me in working at Univision, um, besides the fact that it made me want to be Hispanic, um, was that basically they, the Hispanic community was so good at organizing. They sort of recognized the power of organizing and coming together. And frankly, um, you know, I mean, the numbers work in their favor, right? But what, what was actually amazing, and I actually think about this a lot because, you know, when I meet, um, you know, Iranian organizations who are trying to do similar things, the culture of Iranians is generally not to be, um, not to gather, like they're, they're not joiners, right? And it actually works in their, against them, right? Because I'm like, 
really, there is power in numbers and coming together as you're describing an allyship. And if you're really like sort of too cool to join, like it actually, it actually works against you. And I think that there are lessons to be learned, right? And you look at um, other groups who've come together, who've sort of recognized um, that in coming together, they can retain their identity and still be individuals, but still be part of a collective. Because one of the things we also knew about the Hispanic community from my experience was that like you might be Mexican, but you also considered yourself American and you considered your Hispanic. So there, there are rings to your identity, but I think the idea of um, this group in particular, recognizing the power of the collective and finding allyship is an important one that really, I think historically has been lost um, on, on this sort of um, grouping, right? And I think that I'm amazed. I'm so excited to actually have people come together because it allows us to actually use our collective voice and power to enable others to do things that maybe were more difficult for us, right? But but I do think it's always good to learn from other groups who um, found their way and, and paved the way for their own community, right? And so thank you for Adweek and Fahad and everybody for organizing this event because it's a perfect example of what that allyship that you're describing looks like. Yeah, I think, you know, you're right, Miriam. And the thing that is, uh, for me, probably has been the hardest is finding each other. Because again, you know, no one is tracking us because we check the box of white. And so we can't even in our own organizations, unless we do things like what Dahlia did, which is create an employee resource group around, you know, people of Middle Eastern, North Africa heritage, no one even knows that we are, that we exist, right? We, we kind of, to your point, we walk around like chameleons, like everybody else. And so I think it's, it's fascinating to me every time I'm on a panel or I have a conversation over the last couple of years where I have been proud about my, you know, being Lebanese and being an immigrant and telling people my story, inevitably, at least one person after the talk will come and say to me, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, Syrian or my father's Palestinian or my grandmother was Iranian or something. And your story is my story. And this is amazing. And how do we stay in touch? And so I do think there is power in the collective. There is power in the numbers. There's power in kind of gathering and organizing. The, the, the hardest part about it is how do we find each other? That's been the hardest part about it is. And so that's why this is so exciting to me. And I've been, you know, reading some of the, the questions and the comments and they're just, they're heartwarming because we all have the same heartbreaking experiences and there's no, there's been nowhere to turn. There's been no one to talk to as a result of that. Yeah. And to build on that, I definitely think, you know, organizing is so, so important. So for instance, you know, Carla, you mentioned you checked off white because that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Um, but there was a movement and it was very small. And unfortunately it was because this collective could not sort of, you know, get together, um, was to check off other, because when you check off other in the census, it starts to grow. And then there is a concern, obviously 10 years for the next census, 10 years later to say, we can't have all these people check other, we have to give them, you know, what they need and identify them on the census. So this is just a, a symbolic, uh, um, uh, uh, situation, right? It's just, you, you, you don't, we don't conform. We don't, we don't check off white. We check off other. Um, and I thought that that was such a powerful way to say, Hey, uh, uh, make sure we count. Um, and with cl clearly being other is still insufficient, but it's, it's sort of a step in the right direction. And eventually, um, that other, once that other 
portion is just so large, we'd have to we'd have to have a um, uh, a category of our own. Yeah, it's so yeah, true. I, I, I do that Hannah too. Brink. I check the other, and then I'm like Arab, you know, just yeah. <laughs> I'm just I want I to. I think exactly. Hannah, you bring up a great point, and 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 that one of the things that I think is unique about our experience is quite often when we talk about diversity and inclusion issues, we talk about other people's discomfort and they either have their ability to become comfortable with that discomfort. It's actually our community that has to be comfortable with our own discomfort to the point that Farhana made. We have to start not accepting that. We have to, you know, in a way sort of out ourselves from this. And there are now tools that can help us with this in the workplace as well. So I've made this an issue in our organization that I will no longer accept census data as our, we find we have to file it as a, a corporate responsibility but that should not define what we collect as an organization. And so as we now implement Workplace as a platform, Workplace now allows for self-identification, not just across culture, but also across gender and orientation, et cetera. Self-identification, right? So there are systems that are now able to be able to put into place and we as leaders have to take those stances and, and start to really make an issue of that with our organizations. And, and as this is one of the abilities as we become more senior leaders and move to the C-suite, we've got to find that allyship to have those dialogues and have this conversation. So we are actually fundamentally making that change organization. We implement the next month. And for the first time in my career, I will actually be able to self-identify. Um, and, 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 and that's, you know, if you think about the groups in the gay community that talk about their, their ability to do that, there's an allyship to this experience yeah. and understanding that to, to Dahlia's point that we need to continue to collectively develop, but it becomes, it comes with our first, our own discomfort and our own ability to bring these conversations to bear in our own community, which historically we've not been great at. Yeah, that really resonates with me. You know, when I started We Are Rosie, there were a couple of things that I think are relevant here. One, I was really stoked that I was gonna um, have a certified minority owned business and I was so wrong, right? They're like, nope, Arabs are white, like no dice. Um, and this precedent has been set 60 years ago and that's just who you all are to us. And so that was an interesting kind of um, smack in the face for me. But to go back to what Tarek is talking about with self-identification, I think it's so important for people to have that empowered experience to self-identify. You know, I think back to when I was applying um, for college as a first gen college attendee. And I remember asking my mom like, what am I? Like, where, do, where, where am I in this? And she's like, do not check white, right? Like you're not white. Um, and so she thankfully had me checking other from a really young age, but within our own business, you know, We Are Rosie has made a public commitment that 40% of the people we put on projects, we have 6,500 freelancers. We've made a public commitment that 40% of them um, that get to work each year will be black or people of color. And um, self-identification is such a critical piece of that, right? Because if we used census forms um, or the census kind of um, buckets to, to categorize people, I would get lost in that. Like me, the, the founder of the company. So we're like, likewise rolling out a self-identification um, mechanism so that we can actually collect the nuances of people of color because there is a spectrum and we deserve to be recognized, certainly. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, uh, Stephanie. And, and there's a couple things that I think of. So, you know, we, we did a similar thing with you, right? We actually added Arab as a category. We wanted to make sure that people can identify. And there's so many different ways that people identify. And I think it's important for us to meet people where they are. And that's something that I'm seeing happen more and more. And, you know, Stephanie, you in particular actually spoke a bit about the idea of safety, right? And there's psychological safety, but there's also physical safety, right? And changing your name and things like that. So a question for the group that I have that actually was uh, brought forward by Waleed, um, one of our viewers right now, at what point in your career, 
at work, did you actually feel safe? Did you actually feel like I can be my full self? I can actually talk about my full identity being from the Middle East or North Africa. Um, Sepida, could you, could you start off and let us know when you, when, when was that point for you? You know, it started for me from very young on. And the reason for that was that at home, we had to be proud of who we are. So learning the language and, um, you know, practicing the culture, it was not even an option for me to identify anything else. I think the only thing that I really changed was from Sepide going to Sepi because people could not say my name right. And so, um, but being an individual was pushed into me, being authentic was pushed and not having the fear of what my Iranian descent represents and especially, you know, in other spheres where, you know, the representation of Iranian means something else. And, and for me, it was more, people just don't know if you today even say the country, some people can't identify where it is uh, on, the, on the map. And again, comes to back, you know, I felt safe because I was making sure people knew who I was or my background and my uh, upbringing so that they felt comfortable knowing actually what Iranian means. Um, and I think that goes back into, uh, you know, having that self fear of what if people don't like me or what if people will fear me or what, what if they make their own opinion about me by educating them every time, whether at a young age or throughout my college years, you know, I always created either a Persian club at my university or high school or, you know, every time throughout the steps, being an advocate uh, made me safe because I was advocating for it in the first place. One of the, the safest, I think, times I felt also as an Iranian was, um, it was 2017 at Airbnb, it was, right after Trump issued the travel ban, which if um, you guys remember that was when a lot of the countries where we're from, these panelists are from, were banned um, from traveling to the US, Iran being one of those countries. And I was fortunate enough to have leadership and a CEO and a CMO who essentially handed over the megaphone that is Airbnb and let us essentially push through and create a Super Bowl spot in direct response to the travel ban, I'm sure you guys have seen it. Hopefully you've seen it. Uh, it was the We Accept campaign. And that moment in particular was, it was um, I was torn uh, leading up to that because the travel ban happened. I very much wanted to go to the airport and be a translator for, a Farsi translator for Iranians who were stuck. And instead I was getting basically pulled back into work that week creating a Super Bowl spot in five days, which was absurd, as all of us marketers know. The fact that we did that is crazy. Um, but I, I was able to really make an impact and push and, and um, be heard and be seen and you know, literally be seen. I was being photographed to be used in this content and these assets. And I was like um, excited and thrilled and honored to, to have that, um, that stage. And, I recognize that not everyone has that within their internal teams and with, with leadership and the dynamics are, can be very different. But I think that being loud and being 
um, open about sharing your story and where you're from and, and, and working in a place that values your opinion and your diversity can open up that kind of safety net and, and allow you to be, um, to be in that situation. And I, I'll, I'll provide a totally different experience because um, for me, because I actually was very, very quiet about who I was. I was not comfortable um, until probably two or three years ago when I became much more senior. Um, and it kind of stemmed from when we first moved to the US. So we were, um, I was, like I said, grew up in, in, in Dubai and we were here in the US for the summer uh, and Iraq invaded Kuwait and my family decided that we were gonna stay here, right? It was the beginning of the first Gulf War. And uh, I, I had graduated high school, but my parents decided that I was gonna do another year here because I was, long story short, in the international baccalaureate system where you do a 13th grade, not a 12th grade, but not you don't stop at 12th. Anyway, so I did an extra year and I was in a high school and you know things were, things were fine. But, uh, but there were moments where people would say stupid, stupid stuff like, you know, don't piss Carla off because she'll go to the car and get her guns and her bombs. Um, there were moments where it was really, really extreme where someone, you know, uh, used the N word and said, well, you're just a sand N word. Um, and, you know, all, all these kinds of things where, you know, my maiden name is Zachim. And so, you know, people would say, what, what's, what's your name, you know, they'd spit it out. I mean, it was things like that, right? And, and, and you know, we had an accent. Uh, and so for me, it was really, you know, we would go to the grocery store and, and the checkout lady wouldn't understand my mom. So she would say to her, you know, ma'am, I'm sorry, you have a strong accent. And my mom in all her pride would say, I don't have accent, you have accent, right? Um, you know, which probably a lot of you guys can, mm -hmm. can, can uh, relate to. But so I was very proud Lebanese. I was very a very proud immigrant, but when it came time to work, uh, it, it was really, really difficult for me because I had had that experience and I had said, how do I, how do I swim here and not sink? And my experience to swim and not sink was to assimilate. It was awful. Right. So I stopped speaking Arabic and I stopped, you know, uh, I, you know, it's my native tongue. Uh, and I stopped, you know, talking to my friends that were in the Middle East because I was now American and I had to be as American as I possibly could be. And for years and years and years, it worked. Right. Because, again, much like Stephanie, I'm white passing. And so, but I woke up one day when it was later on in my career and I was like, well, wait, the only person that I'm kidding is myself here, number one. And number two, I talk so much about authenticity and leadership and yet I'm living a totally inauthentic life. I'm someone completely different at work than I am, you know, in my personal life. And, and then, you know, another, a bunch of questions have come up around like, you know, where do you, where do we find each other? And has any Arab helped you in your, in your, or Middle Eastern or helped you in your career? And no, no one has, because I don't know where to find them. And so I made a commitment at some point that shame on me, if I reach this level in my career where I don't reach back and I don't do what, you know, what I should do for my own people um, and help them. And so for me, and then I think Mariam, much like you over the last few years, it kind of became a sense of pride to say, no, I am an immigrant and I have gone through a bunch of stuff and I am Lebanese and I also am a proud American carrying citizen, right? And so 
all of those things make me authentically who I am. And so I want to give back and I feel like I have an opportunity to, and I should, and I have a responsibility to, but it was not until later on in my career. I was not comfortable uh, because I felt, and I had seen other people in, in experiences I had, or I had seen others that had been discriminated against because they were Arab. They either looked Arab or they had an Arabic name or they had an Arabic accent and they were discriminated against. So, you know, shame on me for, all those years kind of posing as somebody that I wasn't, but it, it worked. And up until a certain point where I was like, no, not, a, not on my watch that I don't want my legacy to be that. So it's a different perspective and a different experience and maybe a different time. But, you know, um, I felt like I had a responsibility at some point. I woke up and I was like, no, not, not cool. Yeah, Carla, that uh, plus one to that. So I have very similar experience for me. You know, I, I remember as a young child asking a bunch of questions about my dad. So we don't know a lot about my, my father's family. We don't even have photographs. We don't know my dad's real birthday. Um, and the story goes an abridged version, right? Like soldiers showed up at my father, my grandfather's farm when my dad was four years old and put the entire family into a refugee camp. They spent 10 years there, right? And my grandfather was a wealthy farmer and they lost everything, right? And, and completely had to rebuild from nothing. Um, and so for me, it was just so personal. Like I always recognized the privilege I had of being born in this country, of going to college, um, of being named Stephanie. And I was so tunnel vision committed to return the glory to my family. Like it is so personal for me that like the suffering that happened for me to get to where I am will not go, will not be for nothing. And so like Carla, I was all about assimilating, right? Like whatever is the fastest path to access and opportunity and wealth, like I'm there. And so I, I hid who I was, right? And I, I was not comfortable talking about who I am as a whole human being and my background until I started my own company. And it was, you know, if you think about it from a timing perspective, because we've talked about this a few times, it was kind of 2017, 2018 with the Muslim ban, where I think a lot of us kind of maybe started to think about things differently. Um, but like Carla, at that point, I said, I have a lot of influence now. I have social capital and I need to use that to help others, right? Not just help myself and my, and my own family. So it became like kind of this really the feeling of responsibility and, and something that I needed to do to support others like me so that they didn't have to, you know, go through that, you know, decades of assimilation. By the way, the one other thing that I think is worth pointing out, right, when I was um, the global CMO at Hyatt, I had to travel a lot for work. And I remember going to the Middle East and also recognizing the power in being a Middle Eastern woman um, that had reached a certain level, right? Like in Dubai, when the team was actually taking me to, the, to my room, I remember so distinctly the two women who were um, accompanying me up to the room who worked for Hyatt were so excited. And I remember calling home and I said, it was almost like I was a celebrity. I mean, in Dubai, they didn't have a lot of senior women. And my, you know, as Carla knows, my teenager was like, well, you're so not a celebrity mom, which, okay, I so knew. But the thing about it was that there was this moment of like recognizing that you stood on the shoulders of people before you and that you had a responsibility to the people who are going to come in that moment and in the future, right? And recognizing that it really mattered, like speaking up and having a presence um, was even like doubly important as a Middle Eastern woman, right? Because there was just a whole other level of complexity. And, you know, I think um, white passing, I like that I'm learning new words at all time. I think the other thing was I was privileged because I didn't have an accent. 
I mean, a lot of kids who moved in 79 came with an accent and I, for whatever reason, had a good ear. So I never had one that allowed you to pass. And in the last few years, like I'm so much more conscious as things have turned in this country of like when I speak Farsi and are people listening, right? Because things began to turn. Um, and, and I, you know, we didn't wear a hijab, right? Like there are definitely sim symbols or signals that actually make you even more distinct. Um, but I, I do think like, you know, um, again, I was fortunate to have found New York where like being who you are was like an accepted thing. Um, and I don't take that lightly because I actually think otherwise I would have just continued down the path of, you know, being like everybody else. Um, but I do think we all have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to speak up because not everybody has that privilege that we do to actually be at this very panel, right? And so um, shame on us if we don't actually take that opportunity and do something with it because, you know, I'm, I'm of the faith that you only live once, so you better make a difference. No, Bill, yeah, and to your uh, point, uh, Mariam, it looks like, yeah. No, go ahead, Rohana. Oh, God, sorry. So, you know, to your point, Mariam, look at this panel. You know, there's nobody who has an, a heavy accent. There's nobody who wears a hijab. Most of the panel is white passing. Um, I, it goes to show there's so much work that still needs to be done. Um, and so the question is, what, what can we do? Like, what can we formally do? What can we put right down and say, I'm going to make sure I had the opportunity to walk through the door of opportunity. Let's, let me make sure, and I'm, I'm quoting someone here. I'm trying to remember, I think it was Michelle Obama. How do I make sure I don't slam that door of opportunity behind me? And it's, it's, you know, I struggle with that question is, okay, what do we do um, in our capacities to bring up those, those people who are, intelligent who work really hard but because of their accent because of you know they're they're you know you look at arabs where we are a spectrum right you have white passing you have i look at my grandfather and he could pass for african-american like and everyone in between so um every shade in between so the question is what do we do collectively um how do we do that and i'm struggling with it farhana can I answer that question for you a little bit? I've been struggling with that question as well. And, and what can we do? I think first and foremost, coming as a community together, when we're looking at opportunities, whether it's for hiring purposes, if you are leaders or hiring managers, other opportunities are wherever we're working and some opportunity comes up for our community as a whole um, to participate. I think that's really important. I love that Dahlia mentioned she started a group within her company. I think we're so much stronger together. And as, as we collectively start working on things where not maybe ourselves, but our community member or an individual is going to benefit, we all benefit uh, collectively as well. And that's truly, I think, what needs to change instead of just watching and waiting for someone else to come in and create opportunities for us. We as individuals have to come collectively together. Um, if we see organizations that exist, you know, for example, I know a lot of companies are investing in minorities, but unfortunately the MENA minority is missing in investing in this community. Start pushing for that in your companies. Say, hey, why aren't we investing in men or communities, men or women, men are just generally uh, for our employees? Why isn't there perks for the men or community or men or employees that are part of our company? I think it starts very small as we 
progress with those, then we can expand into more activities as well. But it starts with each of us. I think each of us can do something. Uh, if you look around, whether we are uh, leaders or we are founders of companies or we are within a, in a company, uh, starting putting pressure there to make sure that our, um, our community is counted for and has benefits as well. Yeah, and I'd love to hear more thoughts from the rest of the group as well, because, you know, as we're getting closer to the end of our time, I, I do want to think about what is it that we can all be doing? What advice do you as leaders have for all of us? Because, you know, hearing some of the comments right around how important it is to think about people's health and how there's a lot of trauma in some of these experiences. Well, Carla mentioned, for example, some of the early experiences that made her hide so many parts of herself for years, right? Up until a couple of years ago. How do we make sure that the next generation doesn't have to do that, that they don't have to code switch to those uh, extents so, so that they don't have to actually be suffering from a lot of the things that the folks on this panel have? Um, Tarek, could you start, off on, start us off on that? Well, the first thing I'd start with is just, and I, and, I'll, and I will speak on behalf of this community here. The first thing I'll say is we're all here. Pick up the phone, email us, reach out to us. We're here to support. And, and I think to Carla's point, uh, most of us can't actually necessarily call out to, at least in the U.S. experience, you know, necessarily a lot of senior Arab leaders or, or folks in Middle East, North Africa that were there as leaders to mentor, counsel, provide opportunity. And I would just say on behalf of this group, part of the reason we're here is to start that identification and identi have people identify and know that there are senior leaders. Uh, when we were looking at this, Nadine had some feedback from the community. And one of the things that struck me in the quote was, I had no idea there were this many leaders from my background even out there. And so this is just starting to light the wick to that and make sure that, that people understand that we are aware. Secondly, Again, it goes back to my point about discomfort. We have to create discomfort for others. We have to create discomfort in ourselves and we have to start claiming not only our identity, but our identity, our systemic identity, not just our own cultural identity um, and, and driving that into our organizations and into our, our companies um, and ally to ensure those things are happening. And, it, and when it's not, you're gonna have decisions about whether you're gonna stay, you know, make a stand on it or whether you're going to leave because you know, that's the other thing you have to start doing and, and you can learn from so many other cultural communities they walk when it's not being done right take our talent and and you move if you can't find it don't do what some of us did in our past which was just allow our identity to take second place i think we just as an organization have to find our confidence last thing i'd say is you know we're a unique culture we provide a buffet of opportunity for discrimination right we, we provide faith-based, we provide geopolitical-based, we provide cultural-based, like there's a number of ways if you want to come at us, you can do it. And we have to collectively uh, find a way to stand in place for each other, no matter whether that specific element of discrimination applies to you or not, because they're applying it to all of us irrespective. And I think you saw that during the Muslim ban. If you are Arab by virtue, you are Muslim, right? Um, number of us are in multi-faith marriages or interfaith marriages. At, we're involved in interfaith communities, including in our own Middle Eastern communities. So we have to start collectively coming together and not only fight for ourselves, but fight for each other as well yeah. and, and be unabashed about it and recognize you got a community here that's saying we're here to help. 
Yeah, Tarek, can I can I add to that? I think um, to to your last point, uh, in addition to the sort of coming together, the the we all sit in roles where we are creating content. Um, we are we're marketers. We're you know we're in the entertainment industry. We're in you know across the board. We own our own organizations. We are creating content. How we um, we have the opportunity to to change how people perceive people of Middle Eastern and North African heritage. And so, you know, whether that's in, you know, how we're hiring, whether it, that's in who we hire or whether that's in the kinds of content and the way we show up, the way our people show up in that content that we create, I think is, is, is it's up to us, you know, and we have, you know, fabulous, fabulous women like Mira Qadura, for example, who owns an agency that, you know, dedicates their, their sort of life to this, to, to, to kind of changing the way that we're uh, all people of color, if you will, are portrayed. But we have the opportunity to do that in a lot of the content that we create. So we shouldn't shy away from that. That's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is there is a small group of people that right now, and in fact, we had this conversation just two days ago, that right now are putting together um, a, a playbook, if you will, that we will be able to share with whoever wants it to share with their companies on how to do this self identification that Tadit was talking about. In his organization, it's much easier because they've got a platform, but we have to advocate for ourselves to say, if the census you know, which is not going to happen for the next 10 years is not going to allow us to check anything other than white. How do we do that? How do we start the change in corporate America? And so we're hopefully going to try to make it much easier for people. So stay tuned on that. But, you know, what we can we, we can get that word out to say, here's a playbook to go to your HR folks or your, you know, whoever is responsible in your organization for that to say, how do we change the identification of people that are of Middle Eastern and North African heritage? And so once we're able to do that, um, you know, Rada Sufan and Sharif, they're, they're working on that. Once we get that done, we'll be able to share it much more broadly and hopefully impact more corporations to just at least from that perspective, so that they know how many people of Middle Eastern and North African heritage that they have in their own organization, because it will help them as well. So stay tuned on that. So um, Tariq, you said something that sort of struck me. You said something about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, which I think is great. I think the other thing that I think is um, definitely something that is important is the power of comedy and entertainment, right? I mean, th there is something to be said for that. And so I put in the chat, um, this great series that Josh Seftel and his team that was called The Secret Life of Muslims that was really all about comedy and sort of giving a different voice. Um, I do think that sometimes it's hard for people to deal with your discomfort, but a really good way to sort of bring people around in that sometimes. And okay, I was always the chameleon, so I was trying to always make it easier for other people and myself was to sort of use entertainment and comedy to sort of um, bring about these kinds of discussions, right? And to sort of depict the world in a way that's different and sort of surface some of these issues. And I think part of it is also just surfacing some of these works, that pe these great works that people are doing that are actually enabling this conversation. Cause um, yeah, I'd like to, I, you know, I wanna watch Tehran but I also know exactly what I'm gonna be seeing, right? I mean, there's a different way to project Iranians and it's not always not without my daughter. Um, so I, I do think we have to be conscious of sort of entertainment choices and also sort of like the other tools that actually bring people along into the conversation in a way that um, might just be, 
I hate to say it more comfortable for them because because maybe I should just become more of a militant and say like I'm just going to be like more um, obstructionist because you know these days I'm not quite sure what's the right path. But I'm yeah, all I agree in. With you. I think you bring up a great point, Mary. I think um, the discomfort I'm looking for is actually amongst ourselves to do the kind of things you're talking about, right? To create the kind of things you're talking about. The power of a show like Rami on Hulu providing a totally you know it's, it's the first TV I can look at and go, oh my gosh, that was. I can relate to that experience growing up, right? And the power of, of, of comedy and, and there's universality in, in some of those things, right? So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, look at this group. I'm one guy among seven women here. We're like the counter cliche of the Middle Eastern culture here. I love it, right? Um, so, you know, I think you're bringing up a great point. It's, I think we just have to find all avenues into it. And the discomfort I'm referencing is how we get okay with that discomfort amongst ourselves. Yeah. I wanted to point something that hasn't been spoken about, and it's the financial and investing in our community. We as a culture, I think, shy away always talking about money and how, you know, whether we are making money, we are investing in, money, in, in something, or we're talking just generally about money. And I think um, if we want our community to thrive, we have to invest in our community. That also means investing in our people, um, whether that means through companies where we're providing scholarships, whether we are donating to nonprofits that are part of our community. Um, I don't know, for my, from my experience, our community is not as comfortable or has not been taught in investing and putting our money into our community or, or into something we believe in. And I think that's something that we have to drastically change too, because money talks. When you're buying next time, I mean, holidays are coming up, buying Middle Eastern owned products and services, for example, you're investing um, into that brand, into that company, into that individual, essentially into our community. Same thing goes with any level you're looking at. So I think starting investing in our community is such an important part of our growth of our community and awareness of our community um, and also the success of our community. Yeah, that really, that really resonates with me. I'm glad you brought that up. There's so many ways to tackle this, right? Like the, and I love hearing everybody talk about it because there's cultural and there's in business and in our personal lives and all of these different things that we have to consider. I have kind of put my own personal stake in the ground on the wealth front, right? Like I, um, there's a, a lot of work that needs to be done. There's no shortage of that. But what I found that I was like the most able to influence given my background and um, my privilege is putting wealth and access and opportunity in the pockets of marginalized and underrepresented groups of people. I mean, for me, like it was, I've been so passionate about this point, Seppi, that like I quit my job and started a whole company around that because I believe that if we can give people opportunity and access and wealth, then that the problem begins to resolve itself, right? But we don't get the power and influence without money in this country. Um, and so it is such an important component and something to think about. And whether you're a leader or you fit into this group or not, if you're in a position within your own organization to look around and look at the people who are getting left behind, like who isn't getting the access and opportunity and wealth. I mean, at a certain point, like we just need to uh, hire and pay and promote people that look uh, different from uh, white hetero norms. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that the, the financial component is a really important piece of this. Super important. Agreed. And I, I'll kind of um, plus one Carla's suggestion or kind of input on the work. And 
as marketers, we can control the types of people who are in our ads. We can control the casting. Um, and one thing I did um, during my time at Delta was set expectations with our agency in saying, I, in, in all of our work, we have to show diversity. And that's not just diversity when it comes to um, of Middle Eastern descent, it's diversity in gender and age in ability in, in, in everything, um, sexual orientation, because I think the more we can um, be upfront about those things, the more it actually can happen. And I found a lot of really good traction with that when I was just really open about it with kind of our agency and our creative partners. I'll build on that. I think these are all great solutions. I think as leaders with a lot of pressures on our time and our attention span sometimes, but because our heart is set in the right place, we want to do bigger um, impact initiatives. When at times I found that just lending sponsorship to grassroots initiatives in our organization and that that voice can also go a long way. Um, and I feel like it's not either or, it's both, but the idea for Yalla'at as an ERG at Google started with, with, a, with a Google sheet of just who are we? Can we just get the names? Like start emailing people and from one person to the other and go to different aliases just to get us together, you know, like to shed light on who we are. And then lending our voice and our sponsorship to several initiatives involving, you know, the MENA community, such as rallying around emergency support for the Beirut blast, and which quickly escalated at Google for support and help and managed, you know, to do something. And I feel like we, I'm, I know I'm personally very ambitious and aspirational and always want to do bigger, better. And sometimes over the past few years, a big learning for me was this endorsement of grassroots initiatives or movements or and lending my voice and my support or my sponsorship has also created an impact. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, I think I think with that, uh, it's sort of the perfect opportunity to thank you all for a really fantastic conversation. Thank you to all the attendees for all the great questions and comments and stories that you've been putting in the chat. Uh, I actually put my email and contact information in the chat as well. I would love to hear from all of you afterwards. Let's connect. Um, let's keep these stories going. And I think there's a lot of power in the voices that we've heard today. The collective power of them all coming together is only going to get stronger and stronger. So with that, again, thank you, Adweek. Thank you to the panelists. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, thank you for taking your time out and, uh, and leading us through this important conversation. Appreciate your support. I'm appreciative of you, too. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I would love your help in sharing CMO Moves with one of your friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy it too. And if you have time, I would really love your review or ratings on Apple or SoundCloud. So thanks again and have a great day. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? 
Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 